thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this Bible study on the book of Numbers. We're going to be covering chapters 29 through 31st. This is our 14th talk on this book. The five main themes of today's, today's talk can be split into three main headings. The first one is liturgical. The second has to do with the moral uh, conduct in, in regards to oaths taken by women. And the third deals with a specific war that God requests of the Jews to conduct. The liturgical part starts with chapter 29 and runs essentially through uh, the end of that chapter, all the way through verse 34. The annulment of vows and oaths made by women is essentially in chapter 30 from verse 2 to verse 17. And then the war is in chapter 31 from verse 1 through 12. Now there is an important tie-in between these themes because we start with the liturgy, we move on morality at the individual level, and then we deal with the nation that must fulfill an important oaths in regard to that war. And that's a special case, and we'll cover it a little later. So, with that in mind, let us begin then with the looking at the liturgical side. It really consists of three important aspects, all tied to the seventh month. In chapter 29, God instructs Israel on the way they must celebrate the seventh month. These celebrations take place in the seventh month because seven is a number that is closely associated, closely tied to the covenant. And therefore, the celebration in the seventh month are celebration of the covenant itself. So, if we look at that chapter chapter 29. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to chapter 29, the book of Numbers, and let's take it from the top. Verse 1 begins on the first day of the seventh month. On that first day, God asks Israel to have a holy convocation. That means all the Israelites above a certain age, you know, not the children, but the uh, the the convocation of folks who are considered to be adults. You shall do no laborious work. So, no laborious work is allowed on that day. It is to be treated like a Sabbath, even though it may not fall on a Sabbath. It is a day for you to blow the trumpets. We'll get to that in a minute, why they have to blow the trumpets. Then, verse 2, you shall offer a burnt offering... That's a whole burnt offering, which is an offering that Israel offers in order to be acceptable by God, as is clearly indicated in the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. They need to offer a cereal offering, and as well as bulls, and um, seven lambs. 
Now, in verse 7, God tells him on the tenth day, so nine days later of this seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation, just as on the first, and afflict yourselves. And that was not present on the first, it is present on the tenth. You shall do no work, but you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing odor. Again, they have to offer a series of offering, and then on in verse 12, God instructs them about the 15th day, so five days after the 10th. So the first, they have a holy convocation. On the 10th, they have a holy convocation. And on the 15th, they have to have another holy convocation. Here's the difference, though, is that they are not to do laborious work. That's like the two other ones. But they must keep a feast to the Lord. And that feast must last seven days. And on each day, there are sacrifices to be offered. Then, at the end of this feast, on the eighth day, so that's the 23rd day of the month, on the eighth day after the beginning of the feast, they also have to have a tough sacrifice with a solemn assembly, but it is it has a different tone to it. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. Before we get into the details, let's think about what God is trying to impress on Israel here and on us today. Obviously, the very first thing that comes to mind is that the covenant is very, very important. So important that God wishes for Israel to spend, uh, in essence, 25 days of that seventh month, almost a whole month, thinking, meditating, celebrating the covenant. That is an important factor that we have to keep in mind as we go through the entire chapter. How important the covenant is to God. Therefore, by implication, that covenant should be just as important to us. In other words, it plays a central role in our lives. The second observation we want to make is that the entire tone of that chapter, chapter 29, is liturgical. It is all about the liturgy how we ought to celebrate, and how we ought to behave in the presence of God. Notice that in almost every case, when there are celebrations being made in the presence of God, the celebration is liturgical in its essence. So therefore, liturgy is another way of saying Liturgy essentially is the language of celebration with God. That is what liturgy means to be. It's a way for us to celebrate in the presence of God. So, that celebration has three aspects to it. The first one, the first day, is a convocation. It is a solemn convocation. In tone, it is serious. And the point of it is to offer that sacrifice. And there is nothing more to it than the offering of the sacrifice. The tenth day, penance is added to that celebration. Not only do we have to then uh, offer God a sacrifice in liturgy, there is a moral aspect, there is a moral imperative that is applied here. As if the first celebration of the month is essentially to call people to come together before God, in order to acknowledge Him as their Creator and as their Lord. And then it prepares them, it makes them think about what is going to happen on that tenth day. On that tenth day, what is important to notice is that affliction. So, why, why, is, why is God asking Israel to afflict themselves? It sounds kind of odd if we're talking about a celebration 
where people are required to afflict themselves. Why should they do that? This is really key to the entire celebration process that we're seeing here in the book of Numbers. There is a, in essence, a contradiction in terms when we say that God is with us. The central idea here is that when God is in the midst of his people, God cannot tolerate sin. Yet the people, Israel, and by that extension the rest of humanity, is sinful. How could then sin coexist with holiness? How could the two live side by side? Particularly when we realize that the entire sacrificial system of Israel was not meant to take away voluntary sins, sins committed voluntarily. It was only meant to um, atone for involuntary sins or, or sins committed by ignorance. So then, if someone therefore has committed a sin and that has gone unrecognized, no one has noticed that, no one knows he did that, He's living with his sin. There is no confession. There is no grace flowing. There is no way for the for Israel to be sanctified in the Catholic sense by the presence of God. Now, let's just think about that for a second. God is in the midst of his people, and yet his people must fear his wrath. Because they're sinful. And there is no mechanism, there is no way for them to avoid that. Why would God do such a thing? This is where this affliction comes into the picture. St. Augustine sums it perfectly when he said, the law, meaning the law of Moses, including the entire sacrificial system, was given so that grace we may seek. In other words, logically speaking, anyone, anyone, well at least some folks who might be pondering this contradiction or this issue would think, wait a minute, here is God, God is all holy, and He's in our midst, but He cannot tolerate our sins, therefore He cannot really tolerate us because we're sinful. And we, in order to be in His presence, must continuously offer these whole burnt offerings, these holocausts, and offer other sacrifices as dictated by the law, just so that we may be able to be in His presence, and just so that our involuntary and false our ignorance may not lead to death. So this affliction that is required by God then, has a very important significance in the middle of this whole celebration because it should, if it's done right, if it's done with the proper intention, correspond to this notion of contrition, right? It should, in a sense, attract the attention of the Israelite to the reality of sin, After all, in the middle of the celebration, they have to afflict themselves. This affliction, then, would prompt them to think further about the meaning of this feast, and more importantly, about what is lacking in the feast, what is not there. That's what is really key in this celebration. Now, I'd like for us to consider a passage in the Gospel of St. Mark, to kind of highlight this contrast, this this, um, need for affliction, and what came of it by the time Jesus walked this earth. So this is the passage from Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Jesus entered the synagogue. There was a man there who had a withered hand. 
They, meaning the Pharisees, they watched him closely to see if he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Come up here before us. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath rather than to do evil, to save life rather than to destroy it? But they remained silent. Looking around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately took counsel with the Herodians against him to put him to death. This is a very striking passage that contrasts well with this feast that is celebrated on during the seventh month. Here, if we look at it from a purely legal standpoint, one would say that the Pharisees are doing what the law requires. After all, in the book of Exodus, Moses was asked what to do when um, what to do when uh, with a man who was found collecting wood on the Sabbath. And Moses' answer was, stone him to death. He was doing work on the Sabbath, therefore, he was put to death. One could argue that the Pharisees are doing nothing more than what Moses did. Here is a man, according to their views anyway, who somehow is able to cure a hand of some other man. He's doing something, therefore, he's performing work on the Sabbath. According to the law of Moses, he should be put to death. There are not derogating from the law given them. So why is it that St. Mark tells us that Jesus was angered and grieved at the hardness of their heart? Well, Back to what we were saying earlier in the celebration on the 15th day, you must do what on that 15th day? What was they asked to do? They, on the 10th day, I'm sorry, they were supposed to afflict themselves. Now, affliction turns one's heart inwardly to observe the sins that one commits, to, do, to observe the things that one does which are unlawful. That then should prompt one to be um, willing to forgive. Because after all, if I am a sinner, who am I to judge another sinner? But the Pharisees had a hardness of heart. Now, very tellingly, in the times of Moses, that hardness of heart appeared with Pharaoh. Pharaoh had hardened his heart. He would not listen. He would not see what? The signs. The signs that were performed by Moses. In the scriptures, we speak more of signs than we speak of miracles. The plagues were a sign. A sign of divine intervention. Something great was taking place and Pharaoh could not see it. He refused to see it. In the case of the Pharisees, signs are being given them by Jesus and they refused to budge. The other really ironic thing about this Gospel passage, and then we go back to the book of Numbers in a minute, but I do want to point that out to you, is that the Pharisees went out and immediately took counsel with the Herodians against him to put him to death. What did they do? They went out and took counsel. They spoke about it. They thought about it. They planned what to do. Alright? Compare what they're doing, the activities that take place in that council all the speech that has to happen to what Jesus did. 
What did Jesus do? He said one word. Stretch out your hand. That's all he said. He spoke one word and they deemed that to be work on the Sabbath. Yet, their own counsel, their own discussions and debate and planning, they deemed that not to be work on the Sabbath. And you can see in that attitude, the attitude of one who has hardened his heart, how one puts himself above the law, above God's law. One becomes truly blind to one's own sins when we don't afflict ourselves. Now, in more modern terms, that means that when we do not frequent the sacrament of confession on a regular basis, hardness of heart will tend to ensue. If indeed God put this affliction at the center of the entire feast, it means that it plays a really important role for us. And today, that translates into contrition. Without contrition, we cannot soften our hearts. Without contrition, that is true sorrow for the sins we've committed, not because they can lead us to hell, but because they offend God, who is worthy of all our love. Contrition isn't simply about being sorry for what we've done because we were caught, or being sorry for what we've done because we are afraid of the consequences. Nor is it that we're sorry what we've done because it offends God, because we may be sorry that it offends God, afraid of His wrath. Contrition is being truly sorry for what we've done because it offends God who is worthy of our love. In other words, think of it this way. Contrition is our, our deep-seated understanding that the sins that we commit have a price associated with it, and that price was paid on the cross. That when I sin, it's never free, but that when I sin, Jesus is paying the price for me. And so at the very least, at the very least, I should be aware that my sins are not free. That they're costing Jesus his blood. And that association between cause and consequence, between my sins and his death on the cross, should bring about that sense of sorrow. That I, by my own behavior, am causing pain and suffering to the most innocent, most holy, most perfect, most lovable man there, wa- there, there, there is and there will ever be. And that as a, as a creature, I am causing God to suffer. That then should bring sorrow in our hearts and, I will add, it should prompt us to change. See, this whole feast, therefore, first day, tenth day, fifteenth day, extended over with another, seven, with another seven days of celebration, and then an eighth day, the duration of it, the meaning of it, is to help foster in Israel this desire, this desire for change, this desire to be holy, to be like God, to bridge the gap between them and God. It should increase in them a conscience of healing. They should realize they need healing. That the law that they have is imperfect. That it cannot heal. It cannot make the impure pure. It cannot turn sorrow into joy. It cannot overcome death. And they should then turn to God who is Almighty, and ask for more. That's the whole notion of preparing Israel for the coming of Jesus, because when Jesus came, all these things were happening. The blind could see, the deaf could hear, the lame was healed, the, death was, were, the dead were risen, the hungry were fed, the good news was proclaimed. All the things that the law could not do, Jesus could. And they should have seen that, had they afflicted their heart. That is so critical. All right.
now that we've seen that in that celebration of those 50, um, 25 days, a couple more observations we should make before we take on the next topic. Um, first, as I said earlier in verse 1, it is a day for you to blow the trumpets. Now, these trumpets, or horns for that matter, um, are important because these are not the same trumpets that would be blown on all festivals, as you, we see, for instance, in Numbers uh, chapter 10, verse 10. The, the horns blown or the trumpets blown on all festivals were um, essentially made out of um, metal. They're, they're, they're made out of... Um, um, they're metallic essentially that's really key here the horn or the trumpets we're talking about is the shofar which is really a bull's horn or a ram, a ram horn that's what it is it's a ram's horn and these ones are very special because the shofar are blown only by priests and their theme is that of cosmic, cosmic judgment. In Psalms 96, verse 13, and Psalm 98, 8, we hear that He is coming to rule the earth. And that is when, after the, the, the shofar was blown. It is also important to think about, in this instance, the book of Revelation, where the trumpets were blown. It's the same idea. The trumpets, these shofar, those trumpets uh, that were blown in this case, as they will be blown later in the book of Joshua when they are actually take down Jericho with the, with the blowing of trumpets, all these indicate, uh, have two, uh, have two um, aspects to them. The first one is that it's a way to remind God about the covenant, meaning to bring the, the covenant to, the, to God's attention, saying, God, remember that covenant you signed with us. And the second, it is a sign of judgment. God is judging. Therefore, what is key here is that the whole celebration is, in effect, a form also of examination of conscience by God of the whole people. So, you can see, therefore, this whole notion of affliction is fairly central, even from the very beginning. Then, after that affliction has taken place on the 10th day, moving forward from the 15th through the 21st, 22nd, I'm sorry, for seven days, there are to be rejoicing and celebration. Seven again. But here, that seven has also another important aspect to it, meaning that when, a, uh, when Israel celebrates a wedding... It celebrates it for seven days. Therefore, there is another image that comes into the picture, which is a nuptial image, the image of the wedding. And that's a theme that is constant in the language used to describe God's relationship with Israel. Israel is described as a beautiful virgin, and then God take her for his bride. We also have the image of Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ. That nuptial imagery is there to reflect, to represent how the covenant ought to be fully understood. God is creating a family, a holy family. Now, the pun here is obviously intended. But in the case of Israel, it is a symbolic of that relationship that he will concretize, he will bring to, uh, in, to, in, into in, in flesh, if you will, when St. Joseph and Our Lady are um, considered married before, the, and they were married, but there were no sexual relationship between them, and that Jesus, the Son of God, becomes also their son. That is the relationship that is underlying the entire celebration that we see here in this seven month. Therefore, the seven month celebration, which is really central to the entire liturgy of Israel, 
is meant to be, number one, an awareness of God's present presence as a judge. Number two, a need, the necessity for a affliction of the heart. In, in, in our terms, we would say of contrition. And after that, a time of celebration because God is in our midst. God is with us, Emmanuel. And all of this has been subsumed, has, has entered the Catholic liturgy, especially around the time of Lent. Because during Lent, we begin with this idea that we are going to prepare for the great passion of our Lord. By what? By participating in that sacrifice. But if we only participated physically, meaning, okay, I'm going to give up chocolate, or I'm going to give up this or that or the other. If we only went through the motion, we only be, we, we'll be doing it for in the purpose of formalism, right? We'd be formal about it, but it would not change us. If effectively, it would, has no, it would have no impact on our heart. The idea is to be, again, to afflict ourselves, to be aware that our sufferings cost Jesus something. He pays for our sins with His blood. And that by willingly giving up some pleasure, sacrificing something for Him, we are showing that we are afflicting ourselves. Obviously, me giving up chocolate or me giving up meat or whatever is not going to take away my sins. It's not going to allow me to overcome, say, a habitual sin that I may have. That alone does not do it. I cannot save myself. None of my actions are sufficient to save myself. If they were, Jesus would not have died on the cross. No. They are only a sign. A sign of our love and a sincere desire to be united with God. But God has to initiate the healing. God has to initiate the forgiveness. God has to transform us. And there, we enter another mystery, another paradox that is very important for us to keep. And that is the time of God. His time is not our time. We might think that, according to our human wisdom, if we have a child who came to us, if your kid, my kid, came to us and said, I'm sorry, Dad, I'm sorry, Mom, I broke a plate or something. We would then accept his apology and we would forgive the child. Why? Because we can only judge by external measures. None of us will make that child wait 20 years before we say you're forgiven. Well, neither does God. God doesn't wait that long. He forgives us immediately when we're contrite. That's not what I'm trying to get at. What I'm trying to get at is the, the desire that we have to overcome sin. We may have that desire, but God might make us wait and wait a long time before he completely completely give us what we're asking for and in fact he doesn't just give us this he gives us way more because his interest isn't just in forgiving sins he wants us to become holy and he as the divine physician better understand our nature and the nature of our sins and the nature of our weaknesses than we do and therefore he has a much better way of addressing those our job and in some sense, our only job is to be faithful and to be patient and fully and completely trust that even though we may have, we are sinful, God loves us, sees these sins, looks past them to the person we're going to be in heaven and is working with us to get us there. Why? Because he died on the cross for us. He died in full knowledge. Jesus was not ignorant of the sins we're going to commit when he embraced the cross. On the contrary, he embraced it with full and complete knowledge. And that's where we have to start to learn to accept and love ourselves the way he loves us because this is how we can wait on him to complete the transformation in us, to turn us into true believers. But we have to be able to wait. And that is hard. That is not easy. Because 
the hardness in our heart wants to judge us, wants to condemn us, and the devil and the world and everything else conspire to discourage us, to tell us you're not worthy. You shouldn't be believing in God. He rejects you. He doesn't love you. You're not good enough. None of that should detract us from keeping our eyes fixed on the crucifix, seeing Jesus on the cross, and recognizing that He died for us with full knowledge. All right. So then we've observed the... We've talked about the trumpets. We talked about the, the various sacrifices. I'm not going to go into the details of those. The only thing I want to point out, obviously, is the eighth day. The sacrifice of the eighth day. Very tellingly, it is different than the other sacrifices that are listed here, in quantity in particular. The sacrifice of the eighth day are not like the sacrifices of the seven days. Instead, it's the same sacrifices of the first and the tenth of the month. And it is interesting to see how, for instance, the, 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 the rabbis understood it. In their understanding, for instance, in the Midrash, that is a commentary on scripture, you say that, 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 that you read that uh, on Sukkot, which is that seven days uh, festival, Israel offers to him to God, 70 bulls as an atonement for the 70 nations. Israel says, Sovereign of the worlds, behold, we offer for them 70 bulls, and they ought to love us, yet they hate us. As it says, in return for my love, they are my adversaries. Psalm 109, verse 4. The Holy One, blessed be He, in consequence said to them, Now, therefore, offer a sacrifice on your own behalf. On the eighth day, one bull. So this may be compared to the case of a king who made a banquet for seven days and invited all the people in the province during the seven days of the feast. When the seven days of the feast were over, he said to his friend, We have already done our duty to all the people of the province. Let us now make shift, you and I, with whatever you can find, a pound of meat or a fish or vegetables. In like manner, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Israel, On the eighth day you shall hold a solemn gathering, Make shift with whatever you can find with one bull. So it's kind of really interesting how that perspective is seen in terms of Israel versus the nations. The 70, obviously the number 70, 7 times 10 is symbolic here. 7 being the number of the covenant, 10 being number of completeness, meaning all nations are under this covenant. And that Israel, on behalf of all, of nation, all the nations, is offering this uh, holocaust, this whole burnt offering not just for Israel, but also to, um, to cleanse, so to speak, all the nations of the earth, because we know that salvation comes from the Jews, and that back then, symbolically, that was taking place. But then they add that those nations hate us, therefore on the eighth day, it is our day, it's our special celebra- celebration with God. Well, the, the, the positive thing about it is that this notion of closeness, the recognition that Israel was close to God that Israel truly was the chosen people of God. But I think in, when we look at it from a Catholic perspective, when we look at it from the perspective of the cross, especially when we follow the commentary of St. Paul on the eighth day, we recognize something that is far more profound. As you know, the eighth day would then be Sunday, which is the day of the resurrection. The eighth day is truly the culmination of the work of God. Because Jesus told the Pharisees, my father is is at work and I am still at work. Meaning even on the Sabbath, he is still working because creation is not yet complete. Creation is fully complete on the eighth day because this is when all the work of creation would be complete with the resurrection of Jesus from the tomb. Hence, that eighth day is added as a prefiguration for the resurrection, a prefiguration for the um, divine Son who will then open for us the gates of heaven. And that's why only one bull is offered on that eighth day as a whole burnt offering, a complete sacrifice, because this is how Jesus himself, the true sacrifice, 
was offered and rose on the eighth day. So you can see in there, there is also that preparation that will later on open the mind of St. Paul and other Jews to recognize the true Messiah who was already inscribed in the entire liturgy of the Old Testament. All right. Now that we said that, let's move to the next topic, which is that of the annulment of vows and oaths taken by women. Generally speaking, generally speaking, what we're dealing with here is what, is what falls under the heading of rash oaths. A rash oath is always a bad thing. When we take an oath on the moment of a crisis, something is happening, we swear that this and then the other. A perfect example, again going to the Gospel of St. Mark, or even any of the um, synoptics, is St. Peter, who, when confronted uh, with uh, the uh, prospect of being recognized as, a, as an apostle of Christ, as Christ was being judged, Peter denied Christ three times, and on the third time he took an oath, saying, under oath I do not know this man. He did it, because he was afraid. He did it because he was in a state of panic. So, in many ways, we might end up in a situation where we are taking these oaths. So, we have to be very careful not to fall into this temptation of saying, I swear to God, or taking the names of God in vain, or swearing an oath rashly. And generally speaking, we should um, be very uh, careful around oaths. There are not, um, they're not usually a good thing to take. They must be taken for a very serious reason, as when we go, we're in court and we're called to be a witness. There we take an oath to say the truth, all the truth, nothing but the truth, and then, so help me God, and we put our hands on the scripture, because the other part that we don't say is, or I'll be damned. And by this we mean, covenantally, that all the, if I am saying the truth and the court doesn't believe me, that may all the blessings in, inscribed in the, in the Bible come upon me. But if I am lying and the court believes me, the witnesses believe me, then may all the curses recorded in the, in the Bible come upon me. You can see, therefore, that the oath is closely connected to the covenant. In this case, though, we're dealing with oaths taken by women. And the gist of the chapter is that when a woman takes an oath, if she is underage or if she is married, then the full responsibility of that oath falls on her husband. Now, this is not disparaging to women. This is not a cultural thing. It isn't done just so that we can deal with culture here. It has a much deeper meaning associated with it. Namely, the unity of the family. And the importance of the family being a true representation of the Trinity. God instituted the family as a way to heaven. And in the family, he made the man the head of the family. And he made the woman the heart of the family. And a woman submits to her husband in love, not in fear. That's how God intended it to be. Just as Jesus submits to his father, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he submits to his father in love, not in fear. So when St. Paul says, woman, submit to your husband, that's what he has in mind. He doesn't have in mind an authoritarian system or a system of violence or a system of denial of rights or any of that. It is a submission in love. The perfect example being Our Lady. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Be done to me according to thy word. That is a submission in love. So, in that context, obviously, what God is saying is that in the case of a woman, if she were to take such an oath... Guess what? She gets a second chance. God always fundamentally protects women. God always is on the side of women. Um, one might say that God has a predilection for women. 
and it is clear that that's the case because the greatest human being that ever lived or will ever live is a woman. Uh, I'm not talking about our Lord because he's not a human being. He's divine and with two natures and two will. But the greatest human being is his mother, Our Lady. So that is not, that um, approach is not given to men underage. If they take an oath, they're responsible. That ends there. But in the case of a woman, God is saying that if her father hears her and frees her from that oath, it is not held against her. If her husband hears her and frees her from that oath, it is not held against her. But if he doesn't, if he remains silent, then it will hold. But then he's accountable also for it. So, fundamentally, superficially, with our filter today of abusive relationship and broken marriages and men who are irresponsible and violent and men who beat their wives and all the um, crazy behavior that sometimes men can fall into, we could read this text as, again, a sign of submission. A woman doesn't have her say, she cannot do what she wants, etc., etc. But that would be a false reading, applied with a misguided intention, if you will, to coerce Scripture to say what Scripture was never intended to say. The real reading behind this is simply that, in a situation where a woman rashly takes on an oath, she gets a second chance. She can be freed from it. Now notice, again, if she on her own decides to pull out of it, presumably, according to the rabbis, her intention was not really matching her words, then that oath should not hold. That's how the rabbis understood it. And that's for everyone. Somebody says, you know, says say something rashly, you know, I, I promise to eat 12 cakes, but he really never meant it. They're saying, since the intention wasn't there, Therefore, that oath doesn't hold. That is true in all cases. But what we're talking about is the case where she, saying it, wants to hold to it. Maybe she's upset. Maybe she's angry. Her husband or her father, seeing that, can free her from it to her benefit. Now, why is that brought up here? Because it's a continuation of that liturgy. God is showing us how he intends to deal with Israel. In that relationship between the man and the woman, God is saying, since we've, we talked about marital imagery a little while ago, that Israel will benefit from God's mercy. If when Israel commits a sin unwittingly, or when it did not intend to commit that sin, God forgives her by allowing God to offer sacrifice, by allowing Israel, I'm sorry, to offer sacrifices. When in like manner, that same pattern, that same behavior is then extended into the heart of the family and shows show us how um, that truth also permeates the relationship within a family by allowing the woman, to be freed from an oath that she's taken rashly and be um, and not suffer the consequences of that oath. That same favor is not extended to the man, only to the woman. And that is not because God is sexist or is judging men or women. It is because God is trying to teach all of us and what is, what is a better way to teach us than in the heart of the family about the true nature of his love and the true nature of his church? Those are the important concepts that we have to really keep in mind when we read this text. So, now that we've covered that, let us then move over to the third chapter. And that third chapter is... Um, Disturbing in a sense. Here's the text. The Lord said to Moses, Avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterward you shall be gathered to your people. So that's the last thing that Moses is supposed to do. So Moses said to the people, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. 
you shall send a thousand from each of the tribes of Israel to the war. So there were provided out of the thousands of Israel a thousand from each tribe. So 12,000 men went to war. They warred against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and slew every male. They slew the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. Avi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And they also slew Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Now, the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and the little ones, and they took as booty all their cattle, their flocks, and all their goods. All their cities and the place where they dwelt and all their encampments they burned with fire, and took all the spoil and all the booty, both of man and of beast. Then they brought the captives and the booty and the spoil to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the congregation of the people of Israel at the camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. So you would think that the men did what they were supposed to do. Now let's put the, you know, a little bit more context around this. If you recall from our prior lectures on number, Balaam had been called by the king of Midian who wanted to stop Israel. And Balaam was indeed, uh, had the gifts of prophecy and could speak blessings and curses. But he thought that he could sell that gift to the king but instead spoke only blessings. At the end of these blessings, it is said that Midian, uh, Balaam suggested to the king of Midian to actually um, cause Israel to fall into sin by inviting them to a celebration. It was effectively an orgy. And so the Israelites, the men, um, had relations with the Midianite women and that caused a, uh, the, the, the fall of Israel which is akin for the second generation to the golden calf for the first generation. It was a grievous sin. Now, Eleazar, now his priest, is the son of Aaron. Aaron had passed away. And you would think that these folks have done what they were asked to do. I mean, the Israelites went to war, slew all the men, and came back with the women and the children. Here is Moses' reaction. Have you... Let the woman live. Moses was angry with the officers. Verse 14. Verse 15. Have you let all the women live? Behold, they caused the people of Israel by the counsel of Balaam to act treacherously against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore, kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. Now, that sounds rash, that sounds barbaric by any modern scale. You're killing the woman, you're killing the children. But you have therefore to understand this covenantally. When the curses were triggered, because of the sins of Israel, 70,000 among Israel died in Peor, if my memory serves me right. If it's not 70,000, it was a very large number. Because of their sins... The plague came as a curse, and many perished, yet Midian did not. Now, remember, we live in a time where there is no mechanism for grace to flow. What we have, therefore, is um, a justice that deals with the issue on the spot. That's the only way that, that's the only thing that God can offer Israel at this point in time, because the gates of heaven are not yet opened. And in the case of Israel... In the case of the Israelites, if a man commits a crime, if he commits a sin, he is punished. And for sins less grievous than the ones committed by the woman of Midian and the man, by Midian in general, the, um, the punishment is death in many cases. So how could then God be perceived as being just if he allowed the woman to live? Let's look at it differently. If a man and a woman are caught in an act of, um, in, in, a, in, in a sexual relationship when they are not married. If they are caught in such, in an idolatrous relationship, that is, what is the punishment? It is death for the both of them. Well then, how could it, how is it possible that God would uphold such a law for the Israelites and let the Midianites, who have willingly entered into this behavior, go free. 
So you understand, therefore, that at the level of morality, God is impressing upon Israel and the people around them that His laws aren't just for Israel. His laws are universal. And that death will come to anyone who flaunt God's laws. Now we'll talk about us moderns in a minute, but that's what that message back then was supposed to carry. Further, it is also indicated that not only will they die, but their entire lineage will die. That physical death is then symbolic, is a representation of hell. And that's why the children were also put to death. Because they were effectively affected by that curse. What hap- what w- the sins of the parents affect their children. The sins of the parents are not transmitted to the children. The sins of the parents are their own. But it is also true that the sins of the parents affect their children. We see that very clearly in the case of King David. When King David took Bathsheba and killed her husband, so he committed adultery, then he committed murder, and then he lied about it. So he's passable of death. Nathan, the prophet, is sent to David to confront him. David repents. He doesn't harden his heart. He asks for forgiveness, and he receives it. Unlike, for instance, the Midianites. They were never, um, they were never repentant of what they have done. He receives it, but Nathan tells him, because of what you've done, the child that Bathsheba bore him will die. David fasted. David sat in sackcloth and ashes. The child died. The children are affected by our sins. We have to be aware of this, lest we misuse the mercy of Christ. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Now, is that judgment that we just described right now, is that only something that applies in ancient times? Is that something that Scripture records about ancient folks, but not about us today, because we modern are no better, and we have a better sensitivity? I don't think so. I think God adapts the manifestation of His curse to our own understanding. Look at our own times. If you think about the number of people who die alone, the number of people who end up in uh, homes that take care of the elderly and who die alone. If you think about the breakdown in the family, the isolation, the solitude, the living a life that has no full meaning, a living life without true happiness, all of that is not mere chance. All of that is not simply because we human beings make it happen so. All of that is the weight of the covenant on people's shoulders. And in many, many cases, because of the grace of Christ, which is present today and wasn't present back then, God, through all these trials, is calling His children back. The Catholic Church teaches that God gives every man all necessary graces to be saved, because God wills the salvation of all. He gives every man all the necessary graces to be saved. But it does not mean, it doesn't mean that God will force man to make use of those graces. There's the mystery of a free will that enters into the picture. He makes it possible for all to be saved. Possible, not obligatory. We have to respond. And in many ways, he makes it possible in painful means, because sometimes that's the only way we're going to respond. And if we don't, then so be it. It's our choice, and he's not going to go fight us. He's going to respect our choice. Back in that time, the killing is physical. I don't know if we can necessarily, if, if we can imply or imply by that, that there is automatically condemnation to hell to all those who are killed. I don't think we can do that, particularly about the children, because they are innocent of the deeds of their parents. Therefore, one could argue that in God's prescience, 
the killing of the male of the children is a way also to save them because had they grown up, they may have sought vi uh, vengeance, they may have decided to commit a violent act and then go against God's will, which would not be good for them. So sometimes we need to look at the events of, uh, um, in, in Scripture and think of them in terms of the covenant so that we can understand them properly. There is a stern warning there. So, I am not advocating in any, by any means or anyways the, the, you know, the killing of people or war, for that matter. Uh, we should do everything we can to avoid war and live peaceably. We should do everything we can to extend as many uh, occasions for people to repent as possible. That's a Christian prerogative. We're called to do that. We have to understand that. At the same time, though, we shouldn't fall into the other extreme of thinking that no matter what somebody does, there are no consequences. Only that one person is involved. There are no consequences to his family or his children because when we do so, we fall into this heresy of thinking that God relates to us on an individual basis only, one-to-one, -one, and that our actions don't affect those who are around us, and those who are around us do not affect those who around us by their action do not affect us. That would be a fallacy. That would be actually a distortion of the truth of heaven where we speak of the communion of the saints. It's the communion of the saints. We say it in the creed. We believe in the communion of the saints. That is a homogeneous group united by the bond of love. I mean homogeneous in their belief. I don't mean that all copies of each other. But there is harmony. There is a common core belief amongst all of them, which is Catholic. And they, they, their prayers affect us very, very much. We are linked to them. And likewise, our actions, prayers, or sinful action affect those who are around us. We must be aware of this. And that, by the way, is consistent with this um, with the uh, prior chapter about the vows, because the action between a man and a woman are uh, impact the two of them. They are a family. So, in this chapter, therefore, what God is saying is that justice must be brought to the Midianites just as justice was brought to Israel. Back then, there are no channels of grace open because sin, original sin, and all the personal sins that were committed had no way of being cleansed, had no way of being um, uh, forgiven. Christ has not yet uh, walked amongst us. Since Christ came, mercy entered the world, and mercy is the way in which God keeps on inviting us back to Him, back to His house. But mercy does not take away wrath. Mercy does not eliminate justice. Mercy doesn't replace God's um, anger, as you saw in the Gospel, when Jesus was angry with the Pharisees. Mercy is extended to those who receive it, those who are contrite. Mercy cannot be extended to those who have their heart hardened and who uh, uh, persevere in the hardness of their heart. Mercy is extended to those who gladly receive it and want more of it. So let us be mindful, therefore, as we close the study, of our relationship with God. How do we perceive ourselves in His presence? Are we satisfied with how we behave? Do we think of ourselves as being a pretty good guy, a pretty good gal? Are we aware of our sins? Are we asking for His forgiveness? Do we trust in His mercy? Do we, are we willing to wait patiently for God to act? Are we working on avoiding judging ourselves? Are we working on truly living in His trust and believing that if we were to wait for Him, he will come, He will surely come, and He will heal all our wounds. May God bless you, and um, 
remember always that by prayer and perseverance, we can move mountains. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.